We are going to be in Psalm 130 this morning. Uh, as uh, Mo said there, this will be the last of our, um, of our mini-series in Psalm. We'll be at a preview service next week at, at Godfrey Elementary. Uh, and then the week after that, we'll start another kind of three-week mini-series uh, just to understand kind of what's, what's going on is we're doing various practice stuff. And one of those is, is that this morning, uh, Dave is meeting with his group to discuss some of their logistics stuff. But he'll also be teaching out of Psalm 130 this morning. And um, when, we, when we officially launch over there, we'll continue to collectively plan series together, to teach from the, from the same series, uh, to work together. Uh, to keep us unified in teaching and keep us unified in, in, in the idea that though uh, we may meet in different buildings and different communities, we're, we're one uh, church in, in Christ. And so they're doing that this morning. Um, we've been in, in the Psalms. The Psalms are, are, um, are songs, they're poetry, they are, they, are, they are worship, and they deal with emotions. So we've been talking about uh, this emotion or, or, or that emotion. Last week we dealt with, uh, with joy. The week before that we dealt with um, suffering. Uh, this morning we want to deal with the idea of, of confession and point out that even um, in all of our, our emotions that we were created for and made for worship. And so I'm going to read to you Psalm 130 uh, now. So Psalm 130, verse 1 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord is, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Here is um here is the reality of being human. Until Jesus comes back for us. We are all going to live in, in the tension uh, if we're trying to walk with, with Christ. The tension of attempting to walk with Christ and the reality that we fall short so consistently and so regularly. Uh, some churches, uh, some people would say, I don't want to go to church. It's, it's full of hypocrites and it's full of these people and it's full of Full of this, and some people would point out, "Oh, there's this sinful person and and that sinful person." And one of the things I've always thought was interesting is this: is I I've never felt like the sinfulness of Christian people did a thing to disprove the reality of our faith, but rather, it's one of the largest proofs of it. Is it not that 
you and I sit here in, in this reality that, that coming here this morning, I hope you understand, and, and, and worshiping Jesus, I hope you understand, is an acknowledgement that we don't have it together and that we don't measure up and we're not perfect. And so we're going to live in this tension until the day that Jesus returns and makes all things new. And the tension is, is that though we would desire often to follow Jesus, at other times we'll simply follow our flesh or we'll follow our wrong desires and we'll do the things that we should not do. And so I stand before you and the reality of this is that I'm not perfect and I didn't wake up perfect this morning and I didn't wake up perfect the morning before that and I'm not real hopeful about tomorrow morning either. We are by nature people who do sinful things and yet the story of God and the story in scripture is that he's a God who rescues amazingly imperfect messed up broken people and so this psalm is written as a as a song of worship or a psalm of worship for a person who is acutely aware that he does wrong and is acutely aware that he that he sins and is acutely aware of his sinfulness. And so I want us to sort of enter into that and engage with that this morning. So the, the writer of the psalm says, out of, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The, the writer is in that place, in that moment, where he says he's in the depths. He's not in a good place. He's not in a, in a great place. He's not flippant about his brokenness. He's not flippant about his sinfulness. He's acutely aware of it. And he's in the depths because of it. And so he, he begins to cry out to the Lord. So out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. There's these exclamation points that keep showing up. It's, it's not... Um, it, it's not with a, with a lax attitude that, he, that he's crying out. He's, he's got brokenness because of his sin. And he's got struggle because of his sin. And he knows that the only place he can turn is to the Lord. So he cries out, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your be, vo ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And so here's one of the things I, I want us to, to understand is that you and I are by nature and by choice sinful. We do wrong. And we do wrong pretty consistently. And even after we meet Jesus and we've walked with him for a while and we continue to walk with him, my hope would be that the spirit of, of the Lord God is transforming us and we're becoming more like Jesus. And as we become more and more like Jesus, we are, are saying no to our sin and no to our flesh and no to our evil desires more and more. I hope that that is happening. In fact, that if, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, that needs to be happening. And yet, we still fail regularly. And so my question is, or my, my hope as you, as you encounter just this first part, is that you might feel, and I might feel, the weight of our sin. That we would never treat our sin as, as something basic. We would never act as if our sin were not a, a major issue. We would never act as if our sin were... were we're minor. 
and that we would remember that, that yes, we are great sinners with a great God, but the greatness of God, that the greatness of God might be, be magnified and the greatness of God might be bigger and that we would live in the reality then that our sin is something awful. That our sinfulness is something terrible. That our sinfulness is something atrocious. And that we would live in the place where we look at ourselves, we encounter our own sin, and we would take that sin seriously. The writer of the psalm, and this is not the only one, this is one psalm of confession amongst many other psalms of confession all over the psalms. And what you discover is essentially there's lots and lots of songs of worship written by by. David and by other writers of Psalms who take their sin seriously. And what I want, to, want us to consider is when is the last time we cried out to the Lord? Oh Lord, out of the, my, the depths I cry to you. Hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. When is the last time that you considered who you are, you considered your sinfulness, your brokenness, and it caused you to cry out to the Lord out of the depths. Now, there is a gospel reality. There is a gospel truth that we all acknowledge, which is this, is that, that Jesus, because of his, his love for us, because of the Father's goodness to us, that Jesus has come and rescued us from, from the wrath of God against our sin. Jesus ha, ha, has rescued us from the eternal punishment of, of, our, of, our, of our sins. We do live in a place where we're not going to take the wrath of our sins anymore, but that does not mean, number one, that we're not going to have to deal with the consequences of our sin. And number two, not only are we going to have to deal with the consequences of our sin, it also doesn't mean that our sin, when we, when we indulge our, our sinfulness, when we live in our sinfulness, when we, when we don't actively, actively seek to curtail our sinfulness and follow Jesus, it does not mean that we are not an affront to the God who has rescued us. If God is a rescuing God who has rescued us from, from sin, that, would, would, that should cause us to take our sin seriously. So, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Are you taking your sin seriously? Are you crying out? For mercy, are you saying, God, rescue me out of the depths of this? Your sin is a problem. Now, yes, we acknowledge that Jesus at the cross has rescued us from, from, from the wrath of God and, and, and the greatest problem, but his grace given to us should not be the kind of cheap grace that makes us go, well, Jesus has forgiven my sins, therefore I will continue to walk in them. That's a misunderstanding of the depth and the amazingness and the goodness of the mercy that God has shown to you in, in blotting out your sin, in, in, in taking away your sin, in, in taking the wrath for your sin. So are you taking sin seriously? When you begin to take sin seriously, There can be a time where you're like, I'm taking my sin seriously, and I, I, I want us all to take our sin seriously, but I don't want us to fold under the weight of, of our sin either. And so the psalmist writes this, says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, 
who could stand. This is an acknowledgement of, 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 of a reality that I am sure that when you are honest with yourself, when you spend quiet time alone with yourself, when you deal with the reality that you know you are sinful. In fact, all of us have, have sins and thoughts that we can't believe that we ever thought. We have ideas that we can't believe that we ever came up with. We have done things that we hope nobody ever knows that we have done. We are sinners. And so when you start to take your sin seriously, I don't want you to be, to, to be, to be buried under the avalanche of that and think, oh no, I am, I am ruined. I want you to take it seriously, but I want you to understand you are not ruined for this simple reason. The God of the universe knew that you were a sinner and he chose not to mark your iniquities against you. In other words, if you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Here's the idea, that, it, that, that simply keeping track of my sinfulness would be a full-time job for someone in the heavenly realm to count, to keep track of, to look into. And, and how could I stand? How could I breathe the next breath? How could I have any hope? How could I have any, any, anything in life if, if God were standing in heaven and simply marking iniquities, planning to count them against me? But God is good, and God is wonderful, and God is amazing. And one of, those th- one of the great things about God is He, in His love, in His care, in His concern for us, chose not to sit in heaven simply marking your iniquities, counting them down. We are not, thank goodness, like most of the world religions. Most of the world religions uh, have a system that is based uh, on, on something that is essentially karmic. Karma is the idea that you do bad things, you do good things, and those will balance out. And most world religions are are on a scale, right? Like there's a scale of justice, and on one side of the scale of justice is the sinful things you do, and on the other side of the scale of, of justice is the good things you do, and if at the end of your life the good things you do should outweigh the bad things you do, then you get into whatever their version of heaven or the afterlife or the future is. But here is, 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 is the bad news, which leads to the good news. And the bad news is there has never been in all of human history anyone who, who stood up to, to the reality of the scale. If your bad deeds, if your bad thoughts, if the iniquity in you, if the things you think, the things you don't want to talk about, the things that are deep within you, if those were placed upon a scale, your bad would always and consistently outweigh your good. There is never, save one, in human history than anyone who could stand up to, the, to that sort of scale. You are sinful, and your sins are greater than your good works. That's why later in scripture that, that it says that, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. That's an interesting verse because it doesn't say all of your bad works are as filthy rags before God. It says, no, all of your attempts at good works are like filthy rags too. The idea is this, we just don't measure up and you can't stand up to the scale. And most world religions are simply based upon the scale. And the problem with that is, is, is that no one ever beats the scale. 
And if we marked out, if God were sitting in heaven marking out iniquities, the scale would be flipped and broken by all of the, all of the sins on the bad side of your scale. But God is not sitting in heaven measuring out your, your bad works. And he's not sitting in heaven measuring out all your iniquity. And God is not sitting in, in heaven hoping to, to, to catch you, hoping to get you. God is not even, sometimes we, we, we have a scale and we, we have a slightly good God who's, who's in heaven rooting for us. Oh, I hope just one more good work and Dave Drake's going get to get to okay on this guy. I don't measure up on the scale. Thank goodness that at the heart of Christianity is not karma. We are not a karmic system. We are a grace-based system. The reality of, of, of human life is this, is that it's not fair. And one of the things that's especially not fair is grace. I'll, I'll tell you a, a story. When my children were littler, when they were littler, uh, my, my daughter would sometimes say, well, that's not fair, that's not fair, that's not fair. And, and around that time, there happened to be a song out that said, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. And so I talked about that with one of my, one of my sons, and, um, and my daughter said again, that's not fair. And, uh, and the son said, you don't want fair, Haley, because if you got fair, you'd be in hell. Which is a little bit of heavy-handed evangelism, I suppose. But it is why we don't want fair, right? See, this is what's fair. What's fair is that on the karmic system, on a karmic scale, we all are so sinful that our sin always outweighs our good works. There's no way that you're going to be able to earn your way in. You really don't have any good works. In the, from the Christian perspective, pre-meeting uh, uh, Jesus, you have no good work that would earn you favor with God. You've got nothing on the, on the scale. But the beauty of grace is this, and the entrance of grace is that God is a forgiving God. That's why it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But verse 4 says that, but with you there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness based upon what? Based upon his grace, based upon his, his love, based upon his character, based upon his goodness. We don't measure up on a scale, but there is forgiveness in God. It is not, thank goodness, a karma-based system, but rather a grace-based system. And we have a God who looks at us knowing full well that we don't measure up. We look at a God, we, we, we have a God who, who looks at us knowing that our evil outweighs our good. We, we have a God who knows of our brokenness. We have a God who knows of every evil thing that we've ever done. And yet, he doesn't mark those iniquities or measure those iniquities against us. He doesn't throw those iniquities onto a scale and say, see, you don't measure up because the heart of the good news is this we don't measure up but he has measured up on our behalf and with him there is forgiveness thank goodness that he doesn't hold our or, or mark our iniquities against us but with him there is forgiveness that he might be feared uh, the word feared there is roughly analogous to, to, to revered, that God might be honored, that you might understand how amazing is this God that he can forgive us. It should cause, it should cause deep reverence. It should cause uh, deep awe. It should cause us to stand back and go, what kind of God is this? 
Who could come up with such a God? All of the writers of stories never came up with this. Christianity is so unique in this idea. Study the world religions and find me another grace-based faith wherein the gods did not hold themselves so above and separate from, from humankind, waiting to smite them, but rather the God uh, 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 at, the, at the center of the faith entered into humankind, became like humankind to die on behalf of humankind, to rescue humankind. That is not any other world religion. That is only Christianity. And God should be revered because we follow the only God who looks at humanity and the God of the universe chose to rescue it at cost to himself instead of simply wiping it out. Instead of using humanity for benefit to himself. Christianity is unique. We argue that the uniqueness is related directly to the reality of its truthfulness. Christianity is not a, a, a story like, like, like Greek mythology was. Christianity is, is, is not a, a, a karmic scale-based system like Islam is. Christianity is not a meditational system that denies reality like Hinduism is. Uh, Christianity is, is not a, a religion that, that, that emphasizes uh, self-empowerment and meditation to, to the point of a higher uh, reality like Buddhism does. Rather, Christianity is the only system that claims factual historical reality wherein a God entered into humankind so that the enemies of the God might be rescued at a cost to the God so that that God might be revered and worshipped. Christianity is unique in that. And so my, my first point was I want you and I want me to take our sins seriously. But I also want us to understand the goodness of the God who has rescued us from those sins and understand that he is not marking iniquities against us. He's not placing them on the scale. He's not waiting to get us. He's not waiting to zap us. He's not waiting. He, we are not, thank goodness, on a fairness-based system because in fairness, we all are enemies of God worthy of destruction. But we are in a grace-based system. And in grace, there is a God who has forgiveness. May he be revered. May he, be, may he be honored. Verse 5 then says this, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. Here's what I want you to catch from this. The, 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 the person starts out in, in essentially talking about a, a, a psalm of confession. He's in the depths. He's crying out, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. I'm sinful. Look at me. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Be attentive to, my, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And then he points out, but thank goodness in my pleas for mercy, you are forgiving. And then he says, I wait for you, Lord. My soul waits. And in this world, word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. And I'll explain that last minute in just a minute. But I, I just want to point to this, is that I think sometimes when we confuse our faith, Christianity, with karmic faith, God's going to get me. God's going to zap me. I don't measure up. By the way, that is at the core of Christianity. You're right. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. But sometimes we get confused or we forget what God we worship 
When that happens, we do not have this attitude because the psalmist is saying, I'm a sinner. I do wrong. I messed up. Show me mercy. And his cry then is, I'm waiting for you, Lord, come. Sometimes in the American church, sometimes in our lives, we enter into sin and I see the opposite happen. We do not desire for the Lord to come, but rather we run from the Lord in fear that he is going to be like one of the karmic gods, like he's going to be the God of Islam, like he's going to be like one of the Greek gods, like he's going to come to get us, that he is going to display to us not his mercy, but his justice, his fairness. We fear that. We get confused sometimes. This happened from the beginning, right? Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 3, what happens? You have Adam. You have Eve. They're in the garden. God has put them there. Things are perfect. Things are good. The Bible tells us they're naked and they're unashamed. God comes and he walks with them in the cool of the day. They have a beautiful life. And God says, of any tree you may eat only, don't eat of this one. And they do. They sin. They eat of it. And what is the first thing that they do? They run from God. God is heard walking in the garden in the coolness of the day and Adam and Eve run and they hide. God cries out, man where are you? Adam where are you? And he said, I was here but I was hiding because I was naked and ashamed and he said, who told you this? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat? This is the, the beginning and this is our reality. Sometimes one of the greatest lies that Satan can tell is us is that we should run from God when we sin instead of to God when we sin. We, we buy into the lie, the, the lie of in the garden, the fear of the, the man and the woman in the garden is that they had sinned and now they were ashamed and that God would, would come and he would bring destruction. Now in a certain sense, their sin does bring destruction. In fact, it, it reaps it on the whole planet. But God in his goodness is not content to leave them in their destruction. He does two things. First, he kills an animal in a sign that there is going to be payment for sin. And secondly, when he kills the animal, he makes clothing from them as a sign that he covers their shame so that both the guilt and the shame of their sin can be covered. That's gospel. But sometimes we think that we practice a different faith. We use the name Jesus, but we're practicing a different religion. And it started in the beginning, Adam and Eve in the garden running from God. And the psalmist wants to remind us what kind of God we worship and who our God is. And he is not the God that you run from. He's the God that you run to. Why? Because you need the sacrifice that he has made to cover the guilt of your sin. And you also need the clothing that he has given to cover the shame of your sin. That is Christianity. That is forgiveness. That is what is offered. And the psalmist gets that. The psalmist was running to God. My question is, are we practicing a false religion in our everyday life when we run from God? There is in us this impulse to know that when we have done wrong and we have offended someone to be runners. Because we fear that God might hold it against us. We fear that God will not want us. We do all of these things at the risk, and I'm going to jump forward on you, but the heart of the good news is this. The reason that this psalm is true is because God's plan was going to come to fruition in the man, Jesus Christ, 
God from heaven stepped into humanity, put upon a cross, crucified, died, resurrected to overcome our sin, to take the guilt of our sin, but also his blood and his goodness to cover the shame of our sin so that we might have friendship with him This is what God planned to do in all of humanity. Our only hope is in running to him and not from him. And this is the reality. Sometimes we think, well, I've got to run from him because what if he finds out what I've done? What if he doesn't want me? God knows. He knows the sin that you committed yesterday. He knows the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow. He knows the sin that you're going to commit the day after the day after tomorrow. He is fully aware, and God in his goodness has still chosen you. He has still desired you. He has still called you, and he is still conforming you to the image of his son. This is good news. There's a reason that God does not mark our sins against us. There's a reason he's not weighing it on a scale. You've been weighed on a scale. You were found guilty and worthy only of death. The good news is Jesus was also weighed on a scale. He was found righteous and worthy of life. And Jesus himself took death upon him so that you might have life in him. That's why scripture says elsewhere he got, that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The good news is here in the psalm. And the reason it's here in the psalm is because God's plan is unthwartable and it becomes fulfilled in Jesus. So there's a reason then. I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at us Christians where we want the salvation in Jesus, but we don't want the reward of our faith. We don't want the, the full root. And one of the rewards of our faith, one of the goodnesses of our faith is this. We do not have to live in sin anymore. We don't have to live in death anymore. We don't have to live in shame anymore. Jesus has come to give us all of those things. And I find people who are like, I want to be saved, but I don't want to do right. I don't want to leave sin. That's the reward. That's the good part. You don't have to live in sin anymore. That's what Jesus came for. And that was God's plan. And so when he says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman waits for the morning. More than the watchman waits for the morning. Here's what happens in, in the time in which this is, this is written. Uh, usually... Um, the, the cities or the encampments are built in places, often on mountains and other places, where they can, they can farm them, but also where they're protected from attack. But attacks do come at night. And one of the things is it's an agrarian society. They need their food that they planted in the gardens to, to live. And what would happen is people would come at night and they would attack it and try and steal with it. So they set a watchman there. They built him a watchtower and he would watch all night long. And he would stay up all night and he'd make sure that no one could come and steal from them. But the watchman, his job is one, it's dangerous. But not only is it dangerous, two, it's long. He spends all night in the darkness. If you've ever worked third shift, you know how awful third shift can be. And here's what I know about third shift. All you long for on third shift is morning. If you want to ruin a third shifter's day, make them think morning's coming earlier. Right before I was married, my brother and I, well, and I worked third shift at the, same, at the same company. And the company, the main company was up here, but across the parking lot was the warehouse building we were working in. 
And every day at lunchtime, you were only looking for lunchtime because if you got to lunch, it meant the day was almost over. We took our lunch late, and it's all you're looking for is, oh, lunch is coming. And so every day at lunch, we'd all get in our cars, we'd drive up to the lunchroom, we'd eat our lunch, we'd come back, and then we'd essentially start to clean up. Because if you could just make it to lunch, that was the best. So one day we had an idea, my brother-in-law and I was, you distract that guy we work with, and I'll set the clock ahead two hours, right? So my brother-in-law distracts him. I set the clock ahead two hours to 20 minutes before lunch, and then we went back to work, and we waited the 20 minutes. At the 20 minutes, he shut off his machines. We shut off our machines. He got in his car. We got in our car. He drove up to the building. We went back in and went back to work. He ran up to the building. He grabbed his lunch and was walking through. And the boss went, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to lunch. And the boss said, lunch isn't for another two hours. Go back to work. That's how you ruin a third shifter's night. <laughs> it's terrible. Because now you realize, I've got two more hours till morning comes. And all you long for is morning. Give me the sunrise. Because when the sunrise comes, then the, the labor stops. When the sunrise comes, the struggle stops. Give me morning. This is the watchman. The watchman had a much more dangerous job than we did when we were young and goof-offs on third shift, right? He had a dangerous job. He's waiting. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for morning. When you are caught in sin... When your sin catches up to you, when God breaks your heart and you realize your sinfulness, do you long for the morning? Do you long for Jesus? Do you long for the watchman? I hope. I hope that's what we begin to long for. Verse 7 says this, O Israel, O Israel, and I would change that slide to say, O church, O church, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem the church from all her, his, the church from all her iniquities. O oh, church, hope in the Lord, for the Lord, with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemptions. Plentiful redemptions, like God's not going to hang you out to dry. God's not going to say that was one sin too many. No, his redemption is plentiful, and he will redeem the church from all her iniquities. We live in a, a generation a lot of times where, where our, our worship songs, uh, they don't mention a lot of things. And so uh, typically not here. We do, uh, Pastor Aaron does a great job of leading us in worship with, with worship that connects theologically. But a lot of times, there are, or not even in our worship songs, or if you turn on our Christian radio, there's a big focus on like the happy. Like, I'm always happy. I'm always this. I'm always that. And there's not really this focus on, on yeah, that's true, but you're also sinful and in need of a, of a great God. And so this is a worship song written for people who are dealing with the reality of their sinfulness. That's what that is. And I pray that in this morning that you and I might deal honestly with the reality that we are sinful. 
We are sinners. There's a reason we come each week to the table and we take the bread and we dip it into the cup because if there were no bread and there were no cup and there were no Jesus whose body was broken, if there were no Jesus whose blood was shed, you and I would still be dead in our sins. We'd still be under the, 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 the tyrannical rule of our, of our iniquities and we would all be destined for destruction. But the great news is this. You and I sin, but with the Lord there are plentiful redemptions. God does not count your iniquities. He's not measuring them on a scale. He has measured your iniquities and found you completely and utterly broken. And then he has judged Jesus on your behalf so that you can rush to him and not from him when your sin gets the best of you. I pray this morning that we would take our sin seriously and I pray secondarily that when we do sin, we would rush quickly to Jesus and not from him. Because with him, there are plentiful redemptions. That is good news. Pray with me.